Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. Thank you, Adam. Welcome to the History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham coming at you today nearly live from Ottawa, Ontario, on the campus of Carleton University, where uh, my night class just ended, but I was uh, so excited to talk to our guest that I'm pulling a late night shift, as is he, uh, coming at us here from Waterloo. Dan Height, welcome to the show. Hello. Uh, very glad to have you with us today to talk about your new book, which you edited, which is entitled Reconsidering Confederation, Canada's Founding Debates, 1864-1999. Now, I'm sure a lot of people will hear the years on that title of 1864-1999 when you're talking about the Confederation debates and be curious about that. But before we get too deep of a dive into that, uh, we were just talking before we started to record that this book, uh, as an edited collection, is based off of your larger Confederation debates project, which, you know, with the 150 happening last year, obviously a lot of attention was paid to Confederation. And I'm just curious for for you, where is that project coming from, and what is the larger scope of the project from which this book is born? Yeah, and thank you for having me on today. Um, so the Confederation Debates Project, as opposed to reconsidering Confederation, the book, began uh, with an editorial that actually I didn't write. Uh, Jeffrey Kello did at Carleton. Uh, he wrote an editorial in the National Post in, in February of 2015, kind of bemoaning the fact that Canadians, unlike Americans or Europeans, don't really have access to their country's founding debates. Most of our records, uh, as of a couple of years ago, still largely lay on, on microfilm, a couple of edited collections. Uh, in, in some cases, say New Brunswick's case, it was really only these edited collections where you could get little snippets of information uh, about your, what your province's views were on, on joining this thing called Canada, you know, as it was slowly growing in the 1860s. Um, and I, I kind of thought he had a point. And I had a background in, a pretty good background in digitizing records. I was also finishing up my doctorate on Ontario uh, federalism at the time. So I was pretty familiar with the records that would be involved for most of the provinces. And I had the technical skill set. So I was lucky enough to be working on a postdoc at the time and, and had a little spare time. So I started to build this project up. I was lucky enough to uh, early on meet with uh, Whitney Lackenbauer over at St. Jerome's, um, Professor Marcel Martel at York, uh, John English. And, and gradually the project grew as, as more and more uh, historians got on board with it. We were able to get this critical mass of um, energy and funding to actually try to bring these records to Canadians in as close to their entirety as we could manage. So we, we went to the archives, we got these records, we got them scanned, we partnered with Conestoga College to then build a transcription portal. And we were actually able to put, it ended up being close to 9,000 pages of text on this portal. Uh, and we crowdsourced the transcription of it, which was really exciting. I got to meet Canadians from across the country who got engaged with these records, wanting to know more about their province's history or other provinces' histories, which is really neat. Um, everyone from high school students wanting to learn learn more uh, to our oldest volunteer was 93. Wow. And 
she was one of our largest contributors. She was fantastic. She loved Canadian political history and really got into it. And, and everybody did fantastic work. So the, the purpose of the project, though, long story to saying the purpose was to popularize these records, to make them accessible to Canadians. And we, we wanted from the outset for that to be more than just providing a wall of 9,000 pages of text on a website. Right. So from a very early stage, I was lucky enough to meet with uh, graduate students from across the country in the end who were very keen on, on helping us parse chunks of these records into more accessible bits for different age groups and, and walks of life, uh, Canadians in different walks of life. So we ended up creating quotes of the day. Uh, we did 365 of these that uh, well over half of them were, were found by these transcribers who looked at a page, found something interesting, clicked a button on our interface and reported the quote. Uh, and we were able to post these to Twitter, to Instagram, to Facebook. And they, they got quite a following on social media. Uh, similarly, we made lesson plans targeting grade seven and eight classes, one for every province across the country. Uh, we also made a high school lesson plan that kind of amalgamated them and it created mock debates where uh, students were in, in, introduced to roughly equal numbers of pro and anti-confederation figures from their province uh, and were given primary documents um, or, or little snippets of, of their speeches of key kind of centralized points around minority rights, majority rule, uh, kind of timeless questions like that to understand why their province, people in the province were for or against joining but the other part of the project that was quite unique, I think, is we were coming out, you know, right around Canada 150, just before Canada 150, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission report was coming out. And we felt very strongly that we wanted to bring Indigenous voices into the Confederation story and really help Canadians to understand that Confederation isn't just about the British North America Act. It's about these founding treaties and the negotiation of those treaties as well, the written as well as the oral agreements that were made. So we brought uh, the numbered treaties on in the case of uh, um, the Confederation debates uh, and had those trans uh, transcribed as well as, long, as, well as some um, records of their negotiation. For example, Alexander Morris's written account, we had that fully transcribed. And it appears on the Legacy website. All of this is available on the Legacy website, which is at um, hcmc.uvic.ca slash confederation. Uh, all of these records are there. They're all searchable. Um, you can browse them in a map interface. We were able to do a lot of really cool things uh, with the records. Yeah, so it seems like it's a project then to, as you say, take the documents and make them accessible. It's, it's remarkable to me as someone who does not study the Confederation period to think that those documents weren't really accessible uh, before yes. this. Like, it, how is that really possible? And what sort of steps did you have to take to digitize them? Because this strikes me, you know, living in Ottawa, understanding the bureaucracy of this town uh, and the archives as an institution, what sort of process was it in terms of even just getting the rights to be able to digitize? We were really lucky. Uh, I mean, the, the Canada 150 was, was a time where Canadians were thinking reflectively. 
Um, some work had been done to digitize some of these records. I mean, early Canadiana had digitized a small portion of them. Google uh, had pub had uh, digitized some of the newspaper Hansards. So newspaper newspaper men's uh, shorthanded versions, uh, recordings of what was said in parliaments, which in some cases is all we have. Google had digitized these newspaper records. Uh, in other cases, they only existed on microfilm, and we had to go to the provincial archives and ask permission and, and usually promise them copies of, uh, the, of the digital files in exchange for our right to reproduce them on the website. I think, I mean, there, Janet Agenstadt, and I'm forgetting the name of all of her co-authors, they did a fantastic job um, in their book from, from a couple of decades ago now, uh, Canada's Founding Debates. Um, it's 500 pages long. It, it's, it's, it encompasses the 1864 discussions right up to, I believe, PEI joining in 1873. It's 500 pages. They're kind of starting to push the limits of what you can put between two pieces of cardboard. Yeah. <laughs> um, our records are, like I said, close to 9,000 pages in total because we, do, from the outset, preferred a digital format for the primary documents. We were freed from that traditional limitation that historians have faced. And because we were able to encode everything in an XML format, um, it's created a searchable data set where I can look and say, you know, I want to read everything Sir Charles Tupper said about Confederation from you know his early career to his later career. We can do that uh, with the press of a couple buttons. Right. And sort of I'm looking at it now. Uh, you go the first homepage or the first thing you're confronted with is a map with a bunch of icons and you can see what happened in different regions. There's a, a thing that says enter your postal code and you can see what your local leaders were saying. That's a really cool That's idea right. there. Uh, like you say, the lessons plans are here, the daily quotes, uh, another map where you can look province by province, territory by territory. Uh, really, really fascinating way to think about confederation and the accessibility of these documents. And you mentioned that you were able to go to the public and have people go through the documents and, and get them all together. You said that there was a lot of energy behind it. Was that process challenging for you as the as a historian, uh, as someone who I know, at least for me, as I, my career has evolved, you know, I always want to be in control of everything. I know there's a, a recognition that with the number of documents you can't, but even as someone who just studies it and is interested that you have this desire of, well, these things weren't accessible to me for so long. I just want to see them all. Yeah, no, I, I'll confess I haven't read every page. Um, <laughs> it was really exciting meeting all of these Canadians, not always in person. Sometimes it was only online. Uh, but just, yeah, getting to be a part of that energy Um we had volunteers, I mean, to have that searchable data set you see, we had to identify every individual who speaks in the records. And there was a, a mother-daughter team who decided to take this on. And they spent quite a lot of time developing what, what became the data set for that. Um, knew nothing about it previously. We're just very interested in taking it on. Which is so cool, right, to have that, that they just want to do it. And uh, if you look at the About page on the site or the Team page, yes, this is uh, a, a extraordinary number of individuals who you have listed here in terms of the transcription team. This is 
you know, as close to an army as you could really get. Yeah. No, it was, it was really fantastic to be a part of it and to get to interact with all these people. And I, I hope it's something that can be repeated. I mean, Canada 150 and, and those kinds of major anniversaries don't come along that often. But, I, you know, I've seen LA Library and Archives Canada is starting a, a public crowdsource transcription project as well. I hope they, they, they experience a similar level of, of public interest and energy that, that we did. Yeah, because you wonder moving forward if with Canada 150 in the rearview mirror now, if some of that energy might go away, uh, and particularly as we start to increase in terms of Second World War anniversaries, mm-hmm. if some attention starts to shift. Now, of course, Canada 150 happened within the 100th anniversary of the First World War, and there was still plenty of excitement for it. So uh, it'll be curious to see what happens in that regard. Uh, but certainly having this website and this amount of material available is certainly a wonderful place to start. And, you know, even for me, I, I think about when I was uh, an undergraduate student trying to find resources for papers, whatever it was, this sort of thing would have been just, it would have made my life so much easier. And we've already been contacted by uh, lawyers, by scholars, students as well, um, all, all manners uh, of you know different professions, walks of life, already engaging the material. Some of it before it was up, we, they were contacting us saying, can we get a sneak peek? Because we, we really need these records. And I would contact the provincial archive and they gave me permission and we, we'd share what we had. It, there's there's a real hunger for it. I mean, if there's one lesson I walked away learning from this is that Canadians don't necessarily think their history is boring. There is, mm. there's a real appetite for it. And I mean, when it's when it's packaged in a way and and it's the right time, it's amazing how um, how much we can surprise ourselves. Maybe. Yeah, I think that's a really fair point because when stuff like this comes up, I, I use the example of Canada of People's History uh, mm-hmm. back when that was made. That was extraordinarily pop- popular, and when it's presented in a format that people want, it's digestible, it's accessible. And it's not dumbed down. I think that's the thing that we make a mistake too often of is saying that for it to be popular, it has to be quote unquote dumbed down. I think when it's dumbed down, people realize that and say no. And this sort of website is just giving great information and making things accessible. And that's what people want in their history. Yes. So let's talk about the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, with the the website and and the material there, what then prompts the this, the decision to move forth and be the editor of a book? You also have a chapter in here, we should say, uh, in addition to the introduction. But you are the editor of this book. Why would you want to go forward with this project coming off of the website and that material there? Because these are two very different presentations. Yes. So. At, again, at an early stage in the Confederation debates, is this public histories project development, we knew there were a lot of Canadians who might be fairly familiar with their own province's history, but, but maybe not the other end of the country. So we wanted to have some sort of a primer available. Um, we, we knew we wanted that very early on. So part of the, when we applied for uh, funding from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council, uh, part of that funding, and then we later were, were lucky enough to receive funding from the Crabtree Foundation, among other many other funding um, um, agencies and, and provincial governments. 
we knew from a very early stage that we wanted to have that primer available, uh, an accessible but rigorously researched account of each province and territory's entry into confederation. And then, as I said before, we didn't want to treat confederation exclusively as an agreement, a written agreement that leads to the creation of a bunch of provinces and territories. We said confederation is broader than that. It encompasses indigenous peoples as well. We are a country of at least three founding peoples. So as we stretched the conception of confederation, both temporarily to include all of the provinces, you know, including Alberta and Saskatchewan's creation in 1905, the Yukon before that, and Newfoundland and Labrador is joining after that, and eventually Nunavut. Um, We also wanted to stretch it um, in terms of the nature of the agreements it, it encompassed to include indigenous peoples as well. To do that well, we convened this conference at St. Jerome's University in uh, February 2016 with uh, many of Canada's leading political historians who were experts on this period and, and typically of particular provinces. So, you know, Patricia Roy came to uh, speak to British Columbia's entry into Confederation. We had Philip Buckner coming to talk about the Maritimes, uh, Whitney Lackenbauer to talk about the North. And we were, we were, expe- I personally was expecting to get a bunch of chapters with very disparate accounts of what Confederation was and what it didn't do. And what we found was actually we got quite a cohesive story with any prior consultation. And we became very excited by this and then said, you know, this really is more deserving of more than just um, an ebook on a website. This, this needs to be published. Um, and with Canada 150 coming, there, we, we felt there was a strong appetite for it. So we were lucky enough to, to uh, for University of Calgary Press to take it up, and the book proceeded from there. So when you say that there is a, a sort of a unified theme to it all and things come together independent of mm-hmm. each other, what sort of narrative is created then? Because as you say, when you look at the subject matter here and you go through the table of contents – you have each province represented. I would just say for my friends from Saskatchewan that you have been uh, paired with Alberta again. Um, uh, from my time out at the University of Regina, I know that I had some people who always complained about uh, being yes. paired with either Alberta or Manitoba. But in this case, it makes sense uh, in for the 1905. But each place is different in time. Uh, obviously, place, local considerations are going to be very different. And it seems to me, as again, someone who's not a expert in confederation and the various provinces eventually joining into confederation that independently I, I wouldn't expect there to be a unified narrative to emerge from this yeah no and, and and again in all honesty i wasn't either but what we found was that there was a common desire whether it was you know westerners uh, talking about the creation of alberta and saskatchewan or Ontario or Quebecers talking about, you know, their entry into Confederation or uh, Maritimers. Uh, There was a common desire for inclusion. This includes Indigenous peoples. And those advocating signing the treaty were also pursuing a a continued relationship with the Crown. Uh, There's a desire for inclusion in this new thing called Canada. Um, And for that to be represented and, and to have a stake in it. 
while also pursuing the, the protection of local autonomy. Now, the degree of local autonomy, the, the, the nature of it, um, those visions varied dramatically. Uh, and, and that's where, you know, the debates ensued. And we see different manifestations of it. But whether you're, again, whether you're an indigenous um, chief advocating signing a treaty, whether you were, um, you know, somebody out west or out east or even in central Canada advocating joining Canada, there was this desire to preserve a degree of local autonomy, but also be included in this this larger country uh, that was, you know, evolving. But certainly that has to change over time too, though, right? Because when you have those first four provinces coming together in 67, that's a very different prospect than what happens with Newfoundland in the, in the middle of the century, right? Because Newfoundland's coming in for different reasons. They know what Canada is, how it functions. When you have those first four, they're to a certain extent flying blind and not really knowing what to expect. That's true, but I mean, the BNA Act included measures for acquisition of the Northwest. There right. was, you know, there was anticipation that British Columbia would be invited to join. Uh, Newfoundland and Labrador and Prince Edward Island don't join, but they were part of the discussion. And the whole expectation was, yeah, somehow eventually this will happen. And I mean, to your point, Newfoundland and Labrador's discussion and Philip Buckner, or excuse me, um, Raymond Blake does a very good job in his chapter on, on Newfoundland and Labrador discussing this. Yes, in the 1860s, we don't have the welfare state. In the 1940s, we do. And that is obviously very important to Joey Smallwood's argument about how Newfoundland and Labrador are going to come in. Having said that, when you look at, let's say, the anti-Confederate view in Newfoundland and Labrador in the 1860s and the 1940s, there is a common concern whether Newfoundland will have any voice in Parliament because representation by population as a percentage of Canada's national population, Newfoundland is not a very big number. So there's concern about that. And there's concern about whether you know, Newfoundland's trade policies are going to be impacted because of the, you know, the nature of the trade, trade that they have in fisheries and margarine and other things at the time. Um, the debates in terms of that kind of representation and minority rights don't actually differ that much in, in, in subject and content, perhaps, but not in tone and not in principle. That really speaks then to uh, basically the universality of these types of issues in Canadian history. Yeah, I mean, my majority rule and minority rights are a common thread in many countries' histories. Right. Uh, and, I mean, we're a federation, so there's a perennial debate about how much local autonomy there should be. Obviously, when the country is being founded in the 1860s, these things are being invented as they go. But that invention didn't stop. I mean, as you say, you know, you, you come from a, at least an education background from the prairies. And as an Ontarian, I'd be remiss if I didn't point out that, you know, Alberta and Saskatchewan and indeed Manitoba don't get full provincial rights when they're established. Right. And there's some extremely heated debates. Some of the longest debates in parliamentary history are, are occur over language rights on the prairies and natural resource and crown land rights on the prairies. And the fact that in Ontario or Quebec or the Maritimes, you know, they, they had 
control of crown lands, and they had control of national uh, natural resources, um, and language varied from province to province. Um, these, these debates about the nature of how that autonomy is is created um, aren't limited to any particular province. And again, the same goes for indigenous peoples. And as they're negotiating these treaties, uh, there is obviously real concern about the degree of local autonomy they will have. And in some cases, they ne- negotiated very well. Now, we know, you know, once the Indian Act is enacted um, and amended as many times as it is, that autonomy was was grossly abused. Uh, but when we look at it from a foundational perspective and, and what was agreed to, um, there is a common thread. So in looking at them then, or in looking at the book as a whole, so essentially what has been created here is case studies that examine a central thread. It, would that be fair to look at it in that way? Um, I would say that's one thing the book does, definitely. It does more than that as well. I mean, we, we took a page out of Jed Martin's book where, where he's done, along with many other scholars, a really good job of exploring the anti-view and, and giving voice to those who opposed um, their province joining and raised, at times, very prescient concerns, very legitimate concerns about, you know, how is this going to work out? How is my province or territory going to be served by the agreement uh, that is on the table? So how do we then put that into an understanding of contemporary issues related to either independence and or identity or identities? Because uh, obviously this speaks to local identity, whether it's provincial or regional, whatever it is. And on top of that, then we have the concept of a Canadian nationalism. And it strikes me then that if we're looking at these debates and concerns over local rights, all that sort of how do we manufacture a system in which everybody is represented and there is some level of voice granted to each person or each province, uh, whatever it is, how then do we understand the effect that has on a broader nationalism and national identity that starts to emerge once we have a political entity known as Canada? Ooh, big questions. I know, I, that, that's really broad, but no. it, it strikes me as sort of a, a central issue that would have to be addressed in this book. Yes. So... In terms of your first part of the question, in terms of understanding these identities and independence, what we're hoping the book does is, um, as it was originally conceived, even before we, we, we expected it to become a book, was to create, to, to help Canadians gain a, a greater um understanding of these different identities and perspectives and expectations of Canada um, that, that continue to inform us to the present day, be they indigenous expectations of treaties, be they you know, Western expectations of uh, voice in parliament and you know, provincial rights, um, be they language rights in Quebec, uh, to understand where these foundational beliefs came from. 
And those foundational beliefs, in many cases, um, are voiced initially by the antis, anti-Confederate views, if we can call them. Sometimes they were actually opposed to Confederation. Sometimes they were not opposed to Confederation, but didn't like the particular deal on the table. It, it varies. But the point is their concerns often became rallying points later on, you know, in subsequent years or decades to say, ha, somebody saw this coming. Uh, to understand the roots of those grievances or expectations or indeed um, successes where um, the pro side said, no, it's, it's going to go this way. And indeed it did. Right. Uh, to understand how these beliefs and expectations formed is, is, I think, critical to what the book is attempting to do and what we hope it will help Canadians do as they learn more about the expectations of different parts of the country where those expectations perhaps differ from what they have been led to assume Canada must inherently be built to do. But do those expectations that people had at the time, do they alter what Canada was essentially built to do? And do the expectations of people at the time, how should they influence how we think of those debates now, or maybe not even debates, how we understand the state of the country and the political union amongst all these yeah. provinces and territories. So my hope is, and I'm speaking as an Ontarian, and I mean, we believe we're the center of the universe and that that's longstanding. That has roots going right back to Confederation uh, in the 1860s. So I, I mean, I personally grew up with a, a very Ontarian perspective of what uh, Canada should be. In fact, I, you know, what is an Ontarian? You know, it's not a word. If you if you type it into a word processor, it's going to yeah, say right. well, misspelling. Uh, we're Canadians in Ontario, right? Whereas that that's very unique to Ontario, and and perhaps not. You know, in other parts of the country, there's stronger regional identities or provincial identities or sub-regional identities. And my hope is that this book can help create that fluency uh, to introduce Canadians to other ways of thinking about and indeed being Canadian. And that when we think about nationalism, then my hope is that yeah, as we create this fluency, Canada is a federation. It's not a legislative union. It's a federation. From the outset, we understood that there were going to be pretty significant differences in the, of opinion in terms of what the purpose of Canada was and in, in terms of the, the more day-to-day -day nature of things, you know, the decisions that get made. There's going to be differences of opinion on, on what should be done as we build a railway out to the prairies or we're deciding um, conscription or, or other policy. It was understood we're a federation uh, because there are going to be these differences of opinion um, and and they're going to be separated to some extent geographically so we create this federation and I, I like Ronald Watts um, the, the late you know political scientist and real ec you know, world leading expert in, in federalism he says that federations are, are an effective way a practical way of combining unity and diversity so to me to to, to try as many people have throughout Canadian history to say what is Canadian nationalism and to find a, a single ism is, is not what I'm hoping this book does. What I'm hoping it does instead is helps us to 
accept the fact that we're probably not going to agree on everything completely, uh, but that the, the common pursuit of this inclusion is still worthwhile and indeed has been workable for 150 years. With some exceptions, right? Like, oh, yeah. Uh, there yeah. have been national unity crises. We've had, um, you know, referendums, yeah. um, some of which have been quite close. Right. Uh, in, even Newfoundland, when it joins Confederation, it joins by a similarly very narrow margin. Um, so, yes, of course, there are um, the, the, the desire for inclusion has ebbed and flowed over time. I, I'm not saying that it hasn't. <laughs> but what I'm saying is that that is common. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. Overall. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which I, I definitely think that is a very fair assessment to to make with this uh, book and just overall just in general sort of an assessment of confederation and you know i always tell my students whenever it comes up which isn't that often given what it is that i teach that canada you know the the, the debate around canada 150 and you know how old this country actually is yes i, I would always say that the political union yes. that we understand as canada is 150 years old and as long as we can continue to understand that when we say the word Canada as a nation, we recognize that it is this political entity and it's not necessarily tied to the the borders, or maybe it is tied to the borders, but the land itself, which of course is much older and the people who have inhabited it are much older yes. than the 150. And as long as we can understand that conception of it, it's central to a variety of things, including truth and reconciliation, and just, uh, I think, a better understanding of the country we live in today and the political debates and, and things that are going on. If you look at uh, the cannabis thing, for instance, how each province gets to figure out how they're going to roll out in their province. Yes. That, that is a, a result of what happened with these debates. That's right. That's right. And I mean... During Canada 150, with both projects, it, the book project and the larger public history project, it was really fascinating to, to watch the debate and indeed receive some criticism, saying, oh, Confederation debates is you know too celebratory. And then, and then the next day we'd post an anti-Confederation quote and somebody else would say, oh, we're too negative. <laughs> um, went back and forth you know, endlessly. And our goal was, and, and this book's goal, is to be neither celebratory nor overly critical that's not the best way of putting it, but but um, maybe even cynical of, of confederation to say what we're trying to do instead is promote understanding and to promote new ways of thinking that encourage reconciliation and and just interregional or interprovincial understanding. Yeah, and and that's I think what understanding confederation should be, and, mm -hmm. right? It shouldn't be necessarily laudatory or it shouldn't be condemning it should just be trying to understand what happened why it happened and then how it influences us today in terms of these larger broad issues that we, we've talked about so far and that aren't going away anytime soon no <laughs> yeah so uh so if you look at the book you mentioned some of the names already but it is a bit of a a murderer's row of canadian political history here uh you got J.R. miller you mentioned that you had from the University of Regina, one of my old professors, Raymond Blake, uh, Patricia Roy is in this, Philip Buckner, Marcel Martel, uh, yourself. You have Whitney Lackenbauer, who a lot of people would be familiar with, uh, who listened to this show, Perry Ferguson. 
as well. So this really is a very solid group that you've put together. Bill Weiser as well. I can't forget Bill Weiser. So uh, a really solid group and, and a, a book then that you would expect, as you say, to have a very good rigor, but knowing and having read a lot of these people, also something that would be fun just to pick up and read. That's exactly the goal, yes. And I, I, I'm hoping we've achieved it. Yeah, hopefully. So uh, definitely encourage everybody to pick it up. Again, it is Reconsidering Confederation, Canada's Founding Debates, 1864 to 1999. And that is from our friends out at the University of Calgary Press. You can also go to the Confederation Debates website, which we would definitely encourage you to do. It is hcmc.uvic.ca slash confederation. It's available in both languages as well, which is uh, pretty cool. Uh, you don't necessarily expect to see too much uh, stuff like this in terms of primary use and all that kind of stuff to have it be in both languages. But uh, obviously, in addition to the transcriptions, finding the documents, everything else, the scanning, uh, the translation of this, uh, a huge amount of work has gone into this. I'll confess, not all of the records are, trans, uh, are uh, translated. Um, uh, ooh, probably about a, a sixth of it is, is translated. That's still way more than I would have expected uh, um, in terms of archival records. right? So, so I think that's a, a, a tremendous thing. And definitely check it out. Uh, you can see what happened in your neck of the woods during the Confederation, ba during the Confederation debates in your area. And a lot of really interesting material here. So we would encourage everybody to check all of that out. And we definitely would like to thank Dan Haidt for coming on the show today. Dan, thank you so much. Thank you for the invitation. If you have any questions or comments for the show, you can find us at historyslam at gmail.com. I am at Dr. Shawnee Fever on Twitter. If you have not yet, please do subscribe to the show on Google Play, on Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your show. Give us the likes, ratings, all that fun stuff to keep the show going. And we'll be back in a couple weeks with a new episode. But until then, if you're out and you see Enrico Palazzo, please say hi for me. Thanks for listening to the History Slam podcast. Be sure to check out Active History for more features, articles, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes.